I'd like you to turn to Philippians chapter 1, <clears throat> book of Philippians chapter 1. Most of us face seasons of struggle that threaten hope and optimism. Uh, we often go through seasons where we lack the kind of confidence that we feel that we should actually have. We face circumstances that stress our faith and our capacity to trust in God. You know, we don't like to admit it, but the fact is that it is often true. If you're in preparation for marriage, you're probably asking the question, will we be happy and will we survive? If you're starting a family, financial concerns probably loom large. If you have children that are headed to school, you're wondering, will they succeed and will they be safe? If your parents are aging, you wrestle with health concerns. If you drive an older car, you're asking yourself, will it break down? If you have a retirement account, you're asking, will it go up or down? The answer is yes, it will. If you have a job, is it secure? Will the cost of the, my benefits at work increase to a level that will stress my life financially? If you're finishing school, you're asking questions like, will I get into a good college? Will I have a good career? Will I earn enough to pay off my college debt? If you're buying a house, you're asking, is it solid? Is it reliable? Will the taxes go up? And the answer is, yes, you live in New Jersey, okay? This blessing we bequeath to you. If you want a good dose of optimism, I would encourage you to do this. Watch the evening news. And if you tend to be a person that picks up a lot of negative sound bites and then shares them, I want to encourage you, just turn it off. All right? Don't allow the banter that discourages to take hold in your life. I don't know if you've noticed it, but even weather reports tend to be so dramatized and pessimistic. Right? So even just the, the recent hurricane, I think it's the rain, right? It, it, everything is amped up and, and made to seem so uh, dramatic to gain attention so that you'll watch advertisements and buy their products. The weather forecast is typically there's a 20% chance of rain. When it really should be, there's an 80% chance of sunshine, right? Things we, there's just a tendency because we live in a world that tends to disappoint because it is broken and fallen. So if you are finding your hope in your contemporary context, you probably deal with seasons of struggle. Sadly, many believers get caught up in this pessimism. Joy is often absent in the lives of people for whom it should be the norm. Folks, we are people of hope. We have reason to be optimistic, to be hopeful, to be joyful, to be confident. It should be the kind of the, the aura or the context in which we live. But sadly, we f focus on the negative in many, many circumstances. I do the same. And we forget how truly and richly blessed we are. I was thinking back a few weeks ago to a circumstance in my own life. It's not, this is not heavy, okay? but it was real and poignant to me at a season in my life. 37 years ago, I responded reluctantly and finally to the call of God in my life to become someone in full-time Christian ministry. That, at that time, required going to college to have some level of credibility and respect in the field. Uh, going to college was the normal thing to do. 
My problem was I never took school seriously. And most of you are you're gasping, you're shocked, right? <laughs> I, I kind of got by, okay? I was never a serious student. I didn't know if I was capable of doing well in school or not. I had no clue. So when I arrived at college and went through orientation, and then in the first few days of classes, and all these assignments started piling up, I realized that they were actually serious about those assignments, and that they needed to be completed. I, I kid you not, my senior year of high school, I did the career study program. Okay, you know what that means? It means you get a half day off school, all right, and you get to go to work. My dad had a hardware store that we were in the process of renovating a building much like this, and so I worked 80 hours a week. I would get home from school at noon. I would work till midnight every day because that's what the business required at that time because we were renovating and growing, and it was, I had fun though. But I did not take school seriously. I remember the principal of our school calling my mom and saying, your son sleeps through every class. <laughs> she said, call his dad. The principal was a friend of my dad's. He never bothered. <laughs> okay. So once I got to college and was hit with the seriousness of academia and the need to study and to prepare and to be disciplined, I knew what it was to work hard. I just never applied myself in the academic realm. So I have to be honest with you, I was terrified. Uh, my family never talked about honors like cum laude, magna cum laude, and summa cum laude. Remember my dad saying to me at a graduation, he's like, what is that stuff? <laughs> I said, well, I'm going to graduate, praise the Lord. So <laughs> to which he agreed. So my I knew that God had called me to ministry, but I also knew that I was terrified about would that really happen? Would I be able to pass through the academic gauntlet to get to the pulpit to serve people and to minister? Serious terror. And the verse that God used to kind of capture my heart and to settle me and ground me was the text that we're looking at this morning, Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing. That he, God, who has begun a good work in you, will bring it to completion till the day of Christ. That verse sunk into my heart uh, like a treasure that I held on to repeatedly, quoted, memorized it. And John Piper says it this way, memorize it, meditate on it, and live it. Okay, and that, that was a verse that God used to kind of settle my heart and get me through the terror of the beginning of college. I'll be honest with you, my first test once I got to seminary, it was one of those tests that you take not filling in blanks, but a composition notebook is given to you, and you're to write an essay. Okay, that was terror again. I started writing. My hand was shaking so bad. Doug Warren Van Hetlo was our professor. I wrote out my thing, and I thought, okay, I, my memory was pretty good. <laughs> I was so nervous. He came back and handed the book to me. He said, I can't read your writing. <laughs> So welcome to everyone's world, okay? Uh, I had to rewrite the test, okay? And once again, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ. And that verse kind of warmed over my heart for years. And to this day, it is a verse that I love, and it is a verse that I want to share with you this morning. 
All of us have circumstances that we look at and ask, is there cause for optimism? Is there reason for hope and confidence? Paul had what I will call a settled conviction. Okay, so as you look at verse 6, here's what it says. Being confident of this. So what Paul is stating first is his frame of mind, how he sees things. Paul is saying, I am beyond convinced of the fact of what follows. Okay, so what does he do? He, he's going to state his standing before God. I am convinced. And the word is in, in the Greek, it's in what we call the perfect tense, which means in the past, God had solidified this truth in his mind as an anchor point, and he was living in light of that anchor point the rest of his life. Okay, so Paul's saying, I have become convinced. You could literally say it this way. I am persuaded so that what Paul speaks of in this text is not a feeling of confidence. It is a fact of confidence. It is a commitment. It is a persuasion that he has come to by the grace of God concerning the work of God in his life. And his, his, the promise that he's going to state is something like this. I'm going to phrase it now and I'll rephrase it in a little bit. He knew that God was interested in his life and in control of his life and at work in all circumstance for Paul's good and God's glory. Okay, that's what he knew. So here's my proposition. Okay, here's the kind of the thrust of what I want to say this morning. Believers in Jesus should be confident, hopeful, or optimistic. You pick the word that works for you. Okay, we should be known as people that are confident in God. And that confidence should seep into every area of our life, every area of concern, every area that causes fear, every area that causes anxiety. Let this promise flood and wash over that struggle in your life and see how God will begin to work. And so what Paul in verse 6, I believe, gives is three simple reasons for why believers should get out of bed each day with an optimistic perspective. Not denying the struggles that are before you, not, this, not denying the pains that are present in your life, but facing those realities with an optimistic perspective, with confidence that God, in spite of all of the struggle and difficulty, is in fact at work for His glory and for my good in my life. And that's what Paul says, I am beyond convinced, I am persuaded that God is at work in this way. And then what he's going to do in verse 6 is give us three reasons for that confidence. Okay, let's look at the beginning of the verse. He says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you. So now Paul is speaking of what he knows to be true in the church in Philippi because he was there when it started. And here's what Paul's confident of. We should be confident because our salvation, our rescue from sin is dependent upon God and not us. All right? So the first thing Paul's going to say is he, God, began. He took the initiative to start a work in your life so that the work of God that is present in your life, that experience of his grace, that conviction of sin is not owing to how smart you are. It is owing to the fact that God has kind of come through the defenses that we tend to erect around our hearts and has caused his truth to bring transformation within our lives. He who began a good work in you, he reflects fondly 
on their God-wrought salvation experience. And, and if you want to read this, you can go back to Acts chapter 16, and you can read the beginning of this ministry. Paul comes to town in the city of Philippi, which is a lead city in the area of Macedonia. When he gets there, he, he kind of settles in, and they go by the river to what was called a place of prayer. And in that place of prayer, he identifies in the book of Acts one particular encounter with a lady named Lydia, and then the writer of Acts will also identify an encounter with a man named the Philippian jailer. All right, those are the two conversion experiences that are recorded in the book of Acts that tell us about the foundation of the church in Philippi. I want you to notice the nature of these conversions that causes Paul to say, God started something in you. God lit a fire, okay, so that the transformation in their lives is not owing to personal effort. It's owing to the work, power, and grace of God. Here's what happens in Acts chapter 16 and verse 14. It says, Paul is speaking the word of God in the place of prayer, and the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to the message to come to faith in Christ and to be baptized, Okay, now what, what is notable about that text is that as Paul is communicating God's truth, God does something in Lydia's heart that moves her towards salvation and faith and trust in Christ. God makes what Paul is saying true to Lydia so that she begins to respond in repentance and trust in God and a conversion experience takes place in her life. Same thing is true when you get to a little bit later in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas, because of the, 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 the fast growth of the church, all of this taking place in about two weeks, things are beginning to rapidly accelerate in people coming to faith in Christ, and the religious establishment in Philippi is not happy with the results. And so what happens? They take Paul and Silas and they throw them into prison. A reason for discouragement, right? That would kill my confidence. If I said, God called me to go to Philippi, I went there, I preached, Lydia and some of her family trusted Christ, they're baptized, we continue to preach, and we're cast into prison. Most of us would begin to lack confidence, right? Probably wouldn't even take that much for us to be discouraged. What happens to Paul and Silas in prison? They begin to express their confidence in God. Here's what the text says. They were singing and praising God. And the prisoners were listening. And presumably, one other person is listening, and that is the keeper of the prison. They hear this strange sound of optimism and praise emerging from a place where there should be sorrow and discouragement. And as Paul and Silas begin to sing, God begins to work on the hearts of those that are listening, particularly on the heart of the leader of the prison, the keeper of the jail. God does a miraculous work, shakes that place, and it is so shaken that the shackles of the prisoners fall off. The man who is in charge of the prison rushes into Paul's presence and falls before him and says, what do I need to do to be saved? Folks, here's what I want you to see. In the case of Lydia and in the case of, Paul, of, of the Philippian jailer, God intervenes to begin a good work in them. So the reason that we as believers should be confident in our walk and optimistic in our walk before God is because the work that is begun inside of our hearts is owing to God's grace and to God's activity. 
not to our effort, not to our level of commitment. It's owing to the fact that God has moved in and begun to work. And so I think this is the first reason that Paul encourages confidence. Our salvation is not owing to human effort or human wisdom, but to the work of God in us. Jesus puts an accent on this theme in John 6 and verse 44. He says this. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Okay? So if you are in Christ, it means that God did something in your heart that allowed you to see that the gospel of Jesus was real and true and life-changing. And he, he, he began something, because no one comes to God unaided, unassisted by the work of the Spirit. He began something in you that has now come to completion in faith and repentance in Christ and a changed life. So the first thing I want you to think about is this. The reason I should be confident in my walk with Jesus is because he's the one that called me into this relationship. Okay? He initiated. He, 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 he took steps to bring us. So here's what I would say to you this morning. When God calls and you respond to the gospel in simple repentance and faith, he responds to you with a promise. I am for you. I am at work in you by my spirit. And what I have begun, I will bring to completion. So every, every person in this room, if you know Christ... You should look back to your conversion experience, acknowledge how God worked in and through that experience to bring you into a relationship with him, and you should say, God, thank you that you started something in me, and give me confidence that you will see this through to the very end. So what does that mean for our lives on a daily basis? Here's what I believe it means. I believe that that we should share and believe the gospel with great confidence, Let it be a source of encouragement to your daily experience. Let it fight against the the pessimism that is often too prevalent in our lives. Our salvation is dependent upon God. It starts with Him. Second part of this promise. It says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And I love this promise. What God has begun, He will finish. Now, this word, bring to completion, is an interesting word. If you remember the sayings of Jesus on the cross, you remember a saying of Jesus, it's one of the last sayings, he says this about the cross work. He says, it is finished. Okay? Same word is used in this context. What Jesus had come to do in regards to paying the price for our sin is utterly and completely full and done. And what that means is this. It means that Tim Hoff does not have to add anything to what Jesus began and what Jesus completed on the cross. I can rest in absolute confidence in the finished work of Christ as a Christian. I don't have to add to his merit. I don't have to add to his work. I can rest in it as a gift from God. Okay, now, that's the word that's used here. Paul says... He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will bring to perfection what he has begun in your life. And that bringing to completion and perfection is as certain as the work of Christ on the cross. I want you to let that settle in. God is actively working in your life 
to finish what he started. You know what you and I struggle with? We struggle with surrender. We struggle with surrender. We get overwhelmed at times by fear of the circumstance that God has called us into. That's how I felt when I went to college. I was 21 years old. Okay, I had been out of school for three years fighting God's call. And I surrendered to his call at 21 years old and went into a circumstance that I knew God wanted me in. I had no doubt about that whatsoever. What I was wrestling with was his commitment to me. I didn't own that commitment yet. It had not become mine yet. And it was this verse that, that made that promise clear to me, that what I've started, God is saying, I plan to finish it in your life. And I hope that that promise will settle on you this morning. That, and, and here's the principle, the second thought is, our progress is dependent upon God's work. What we often think is that it's all about my effort. I'm going to tell you something. Your effort is crucial to the project that God is doing in your life. And so here's the way I would say it. We work with God in a cooperative fashion, okay? So it's not that we let go and let God just sit back and let God do whatever he wants to do. We step up because the promise fills us with optimism and confidence that I can actually find success, and I want to be careful I use that word, we can find success in the call of God because his commitment is to actively work with us. So in Philippians 2 and verse 13, the second chapter in this book, Paul will say to the church in Philippi, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for God is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. You see what happens? There's a balance that begins to emerge. I step forth and say, God, I surrender to your call to ministry. God says, I'll see you through that. Do you see? So I want you to think this morning, what is the circumstance that God is calling you into that you are avoiding because you are looking at your own capacity and you're scared to death? You feel inadequate and you probably should. God wants you to reapproach that circumstance. With him. All right? With, with his working to complete through you that plan, that desire, that purpose for your life. Satan will always cause you to focus on your own abilities, which tend to become inabilities. Why? Because your abilities are not typically up to the task that you're called to. And it's then that you need to say, God, I know you want me to go do this, but if you're not going with me, I'm not going. That's the conclusion Moses came to, isn't it, in the Old Testament? God said, Moses, I want you to lead these people up out of Egypt. Moses says, I'm willing, but if you're not going with me, I'm out. Do you see? So you have to look at the call that God has placed on your life and begin to work together with him as he works to fulfill his good pleasure and purpose in your life. It's then that believers find some sense of joy and confidence and optimism in their life that is otherwise overrun by pessimism and fear and discouragement. Another verse, I think, that kind of points out this type of promise is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, this balance. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, look to him, and he'll make your path straight. Do you see? So I, 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 I place trust in him. I am resting in him. I'm looking to him for direction. But as I'm looking to him for direction, I am indicating willingness by taking steps towards the goal that he has called me to. 
knowing that he has called me, fills me with this promise that he will complete what he has begun. He will work with me in that. He will join me. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I urge you, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. As we present ourselves to God, God takes our weak, feeble gifts and does amazing things through them. And that's the promise I hope that you will begin to gain and lay hold of this morning. Galatians 5 also goes after this idea of cooperation. We're aware that the Spirit of God comes and begins to do a work in our life. And here's what Paul says. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Okay, what does that mean? It means that the Spirit of God has come to take up resonance. God's very presence internally now says to me, now begin to walk in a direction. As you do that, I will come near to you and make you successful in your endeavors. Okay, so the, 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 the promise is pretty straightforward and pretty simple. Our progress is dependent upon God who says, I will bring it to completion. This is hopeful and optimistic effort, not self-reliance. It is obedient faith that is unleashing the power of God. Now, I want to use an illustration from the Gospels to help you to understand this call to respond in a setting where I feel weak and anemic and unable. I want you to think of Mark chapter 6 the man with a palsied hand. Do you remember this story? There's a man who's sitting there. He has a hand that is shriveled. And you've probably seen people that have this situation where it is shriveled and unusable. And Jesus is walking into the temple, and that man is going to be an object lesson about the power of God. Jesus looks at that man, and here's what he says to him. He says, stretch out your hand. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm that man, I'm probably thinking, is this a cruel joke? Okay? Why? Because if he simply listens to the command and thinks, I need to accomplish this in my own power, failure is certain. He knows. He knows what he's capable of doing. It's the story of his life. So something has to happen in his mind, that is a response of faith and obedience to the intervention of God in his life. And as he responds to the goal of God in his life, he becomes able to do something that he was unable to do. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. In his mind, he's thinking, I can't. But in the power of God, I can. Okay, see, folks, often in our lives, we are in that kind of situation where God puts in front of us a circumstance that taps out our strength, that taps out our capacities and abilities. And God says, stretch out your hand. As he said to the lame man, get up and walk. Do you realize what, what a confrontation that is, but what a glorious call that is? If the call is from God, he will join with you and bring to completion what he has begun. My problem is that I doubt that that I tend to doubt the promises of God. That is the struggle. Now, here's one thing I want you to realize. God is at work bringing to completion. Now, I think one of the things we as Christians tend to struggle with is perfectionism. Not that many of us wrestle with really getting there, if you follow what I'm saying. 
okay? If you think you're living perfectly, ask your mate, ask your kids, ask a coworker, how am I doing in the pursuit of perfection? They will probably give you a really honest answer to that question, okay? But the truth is, is this, and I want you to think about this. Our progress is dependent upon God. He is bringing to completion, which means it's not already completely done in us. It's done in Christ, but it's not done in me yet. God is growing me and stretching me and maturing me, right? If you make perfection your goal, you will live a pessimistic, discouraging life. Okay, the goal of our progress in Christ, the goal of what he is doing in us is not perfection here. It's progress. So God is bringing continually to completion the work that he began. Our perfection, the text tells us, is found in Jesus. Look at verse 11 real quick. Paul is talking about these believers growing to be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So all of my efforts are not aimed at bringing a perfect Tim Hoff to God. I come to God as a sinner desperately in need of his help, lacking confidence, often discouraged. But when I get my eyes fixed on God, there is a wind of optimism and confidence that begins to blow upon my life, right? If I shoot for perfection, I will fail every day. So what I should be saying every day is, God, I thank you that you are committed to my progress. And I step into this day trusting that you will take me a little further down the road that you have called me on by your grace alone. And that will produce within us a humility in which the aim of progress is not personal accolades, but praise God. Right? This should be our heart. As something begins to happen, as, as a, 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 a sense of encouragement comes over our life, as, a, as an increased sense of confidence comes over our life, it is owing to what God is doing in us and through us. And that we should be, find to be so unbelievably encouraging. Now, if I realize that my progress is dependent upon God, here's what will happen. My failures will be less discouraging. Okay? Follow what I'm saying. If I think that my progress with God is dependent upon my performance, I will live in perpetual discouragement. But if I realize that any progress that I experience is owing to the grace of God, and I know that mixed into my life there will always be these seasons of struggle and fears and discouragements, if I know that that's there, it will not be as devastating. Does that make sense? If you expect perfection from yourself and you say, from this day forward, I will never say that again or ever do that again, you will fail. You will fail, and the discouragement will only deepen. You see, an honest Christian can be transparent and authentic. I am a sinner saved by the grace of God. And if anything good emerged from my life today, if there was any fruit, it is the fruit of the Spirit. It is not the fruit of Tim Hoff's effort. Do you see? And the result is that I begin to walk in humble dependence upon God. Because when you begin to see fruit of the Spirit emerging in your life, you are going to want more. Not for yourself, because you're going to be walking in humility. You're going to want it for the glory of God. That people will look at your life and say, look what God is doing through that person for the praise and glory of Christ. They already have their righteousness in Christ. It is now being worked out in their life by the power of God. Folks, I hope you get, gather this beautiful, beautiful promise. 
Your progress is dependent upon God. If you find yourself sitting in a prison of discouragement, remember what God promises to do in a surrendered life. Think of the man with the withered hand. Think of the call. Say, well, I don't have the ability to do it, but God called me to do it. I'm going to reach out and trust him. And all of a sudden, something that you could not do becomes possible. You don't take credit for it then. You give praise and glory to God. The last part of this text I think is beautiful. Here's what Paul says. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion until the day of Christ. And this thought is this. We can be confident because, because God continue his, his work in us to the end, to the consummation, until the day of Christ. The truth is most of us in our lives have probably finally given up on someone, right? Probably someone in your life that you just said, you know what, I, I just can't deal with it anymore. And we tend to think that God is like that. But he's not. He's not. We sang last week a verse of a song that said this, all your promises are yes and amen. They are true, reliable, trustworthy. You can build your life upon them. This text tells me that the promises of God extend beyond my lifetime to the day of Christ. It says that God has covered under his power and blessing the full extent of my experience, that he is for me and that he always finishes what he starts in us. And this text aims to kind of push us to see the fullness of those promises in a greater way that begins to pour confidence and courage into our lives. In Philippians 3.20, the Apostle Paul is going to say something to these believers that I think is profound and encouraging. Here's what he says to them. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. I want you to think about this. Our citizenship is in heaven. Where did these people in Philippi live? They lived in a province of Rome. They were citizens of Rome, but they were dual citizens. And you know what Paul's doing? Paul is looking to their future blessing and for them claiming it as a reality that is true in their lives, even in their seasons of failure and discouragement. And so here's what he says. He says, our citizenship is from heaven. The question is, what should the effect of that be on a believer? Here's what Paul says. Therefore, we eagerly await for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his. Where is Jesus today? Where is Jesus? The Bible says that he's seated at the Father's right hand. And when Paul writes to these believers, he wants them to know how God sees them. They are citizens of heaven. That is their ultimate destination, unvoidable destination. God is taking them there. And God's promise is that what he has begun in them, he will bring to completion until the day of Christ, to the very end, to the consummation, so that the victory that Jesus Christ will enjoy on that day, that 
final public full revelation that he is in fact king of kings and lord of lords, that victory is the inheritance of every believer. Do you see? So that when God has done his work in us, we, we come alongside Christ in the eternal place. It's a glorious thought. It's a thought that's beyond me. But Paul holds it out to them and says, your citizenship is in heaven. It's as if you're already there. You need now to work through this season of life with courage and confidence and the promises and power of God. Oh, how often I tend to get discouraged. And I forget that the victory of Jesus is my victory. You know, when I look at a promise like this, I think of Satan's lies that often aim to defeat the promises of God. Lies that tend to belittle, right? Lies that tend to steal confidence. Lies that tend to discourage. One of my pastor friends said to me one time, he said, why is it that we are so prone to believe the lie and to doubt the promise? It's a thought that stuck with me. He said this, he said, why is it that we don't doubt the doubt? Why don't we proclaim it untrue based on the promises of God? Why don't we take up the shield of faith and with it consume the fiery darts of the evil one? You see, we are so prone to be fixed horizontally in our view. And this text calls us to lift our eyes, to say, God, I trust you. In this season of fear, in this season of discouragement, I trust you. Great is your faithfulness. Your promises are yes and amen. This promise aims to defeat fear that is often debilitating and defeat, defeat discouragement that is often enslaving. I want to ask you to do this this morning. I want you to take this promise, this verse, and own it like Paul did. Paul could, said, I am, could say, I am fully convinced that the one who has begun a good work in me will perform it to the day of Christ. Now, I'm 37 years beyond when this verse made a major impact in my life. I want to be honest with you this morning. Maybe this is your experience at times. I have times that I wake up and I feel overwhelmed. Okay? There's nothing specific in play, but if I lay there long enough awake, a list begins to develop. Do you know what I'm talking about? And if you run a business, if you're married, if you have children, if you have a car, if you have a job, sometimes you just wake up and there's this sense of discouragement, right? What I've learned to do over the years is simply just to begin to pray and to claim this promise. Because discouragement and doubt always aims to think, I'm not going to see it through. I'm going to fail. But the promises of God aim to encourage my heart and to build confident trust in God that unleashes his power by faith in our lives so that the things that God has called me to do that I can't do on my own all of a sudden become possible because God is in it. So I'm going to encourage you this morning. Lay hold of this promise and watch it begin to defeat debilitating fear and discouragement. Say, God, I claim your promise that you are decidedly for me. I believe that you have not lost interest in me as your child. That's this promise. I believe that you are at work and in control. Help me to trust you wholeheartedly and fully this day. And I want to tell you something. 
Take it one day at a time. I claimed this promise 37 years ago. And I have to re-up it. Tomorrow, by the way, is 38 years ago. Okay? Getting down the road a little further. And I need to reclaim that promise again and again. Maybe you're here this morning, you have a friend or a child, and they're not walking with God like they once did. Maybe you look at your own life and you say, God, my fervor, my passion for you has been lost to discouragement and fear. Can I remind you from this text, God has not lost interest in you or control of your life. And for that friend that used to walk faithfully, God has not lost interest in them. And I want to encourage you to pray that God would unleash this promise in your life and in their life. Maybe you're here this morning and you are captive to discouragement or fear. There's, there's a circumstance in your life that has become overwhelming. And you feel paralyzed. Your hand feels frozen. Here's the call of God today. Stretch out your hand. Step forward in faith into that circumstance, trusting the power and presence and commitment and control of God, His interest in you. Trust in that and say, God, I want to see you work in my life. I think something else that's just in application of this text. This, if you read Philippians 1, you're going to find that it is a text that is saturated with relationships. Okay, it just, it just overflows with the theme of relationships. And I want to encourage you to go home and read this text and realize that they in Philippi were laying hold of this promise in the context of relationships. <clears throat> Why? It's important that we are growing in Christ together, that we are defeating fear and discouragement together. Paul says at the end of the chapter, I think it's verse 25 through 27, he says, I want to hear that you are standing firm together as one man, not yielding to the fight. Okay? Think about that. Ask yourself the question, who am I arm in arm with? Who am I linking with? To see that the work of God is done in my life and to see that fear and discouragement are in fact defeated in my life and that God's power begins to rule and work and reign in my life. Lastly, this morning, if you're here and you've never trusted Christ, I want to encourage you to do something. I want to encourage you to believe the gospel. Right? To come to God and to respond to his call today, his promise to you, Romans 10, 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord in response to the call and work of God will be saved. So maybe today you've come and you, you've listened or you've been here for a while. You've sensed God working, knocking, drawing, but you've never turned and said, God, I believe. I acknowledge my sin. I trust in you. I want to encourage you today to respond to that work of God in your life. So, Father, as we conclude this uh, sermon today, this discussion of your faithfulness, I pray, God, that you would confront our discouragement, our fear, our lack of confidence with this glorious promise that you are for us, that you are at work in us, that you have not lost interest in us. God, help us. 
Help us to fight against the tide that tends to discourage and steal confidence. And help us to lay hold of this simple verse. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ. So, Father, I pray this morning that we in our discouragement will run to you and say, God, I trust you to do a good work in my life and to defeat fear and discouragement and to make me confident to trust in Christ alone. Father, we bless you for your word. We thank you for your great faithfulness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.